let's get started. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. I know where we were a couple of weeks ago. Last time that we were looking at 2 Peter, we spent time in the book of Jude so that you could see the similarities between what Jude wrote and what Peter talks about here in his second chapter. Today we're going to look at the second chapter of Peter a little more closely because he does make some points that though similar to Jude, he expands on a bit more and takes a couple of different angles. So it's worth looking at primarily also because the very beginning of chapter 2 has caused the Arminians to determine that what Peter is talking about at the beginning of chapter 2 is that you can lose your salvation. In fact, you can decide of your own free will that you no longer want to be purchased by God. You no longer want Christ to be your Redeemer, and you can just choose to deny him. And they use 2 Peter chapter 2 as their evidence. So we're going to have to look at that and kind of take that apart a little bit. Now, chapter 2, that big 2 right there, you know is not original to Peter's letter. He did not finish the sentence that men were moved by the Holy Spirit and spoke from God and then write a big two in Greek so that everybody would know he was starting a new thought. The two and the verse divisions were created much later, 1,500 years later, in fact, before you got chapter divisions and then verse divisions after that. That dividing up gives us the impression that Peter is starting some kind of new topic or that any one verse of Peter's out of context serves as an entire thought and that you can say, well, this is what Peter said. He said you can deny the master that bought you. So that means that you of your free will can choose not to be saved. You have to read Peter in his context. You have to recognize that it is a letter and that it is a logical succession of thought. He is building an argument and never, ever forget who's writing and who he's writing to, and then you can think about what it is he's saying. Peter is not writing to the 21st century Gentile church. It's very important to remember that he is writing to the diaspora. He is writing to believing Jews who are living outside Jerusalem, who have been scattered among the surrounding Gentile nations. That's who he's writing to, and that's going to be important to understanding what he is saying. So, before we jump right in at chapter 2, verse 1, we have to back up just a little bit because, as I just said, there's context here. Peter is talking about prophecy and how prophecy works. He's talking about the fact that nobody made up prophetic things out of their own head. They had to be moved by the Holy Spirit of God in order for their prophecies to come true. The test of a prophet, according to the Old Testament is that a prophet who says things that actually occur is a true prophet. A prophet who says things that don't happen, Jeremiah says, you don't even have to worry about that guy. Don't even be afraid of him. He's not going to have any kind of influence on your conscience because he does not speak for God. If he was speaking for God, what he said would come true. So the test of a false prophet is he says things that don't come true. Now, if we applied that standard today to the many, many people who are out there calling themselves prophets, 
to the many, many neo-Gnostics out there who are claiming they're getting their information directly from God, directly from the Holy Spirit, and then they announce things that are going to happen that then don't happen, that is a false prophet. He does not have to be listened to, he does not have to be respected, and in fact, you certainly shouldn't be following, listening to, or imposing that man's opinions on your own conscience ever again. Let me give you a quick example. It wasn't that many years ago that Benny Hinn told Paul Crouch of TBN that while he was in Africa, that Jesus was going to appear bodily on the platform with him. That did not happen. That makes him a false prophet by definition. And the Bible says, therefore, he should never be listened to again, ever. And yet he can still hold rallies and people still flock to him in the hope of being healed. And he can still put on his big stage show for large audiences. And he's making millions of dollars a year and living in a grand mansion and flying on airplanes and stuff. But the Bible says, if we were to still keep that biblical standard, the Bible says, false prophet, don't listen to him. A true prophet, a genuine prophet, is somebody who says things that God has told him to say, and because God is the surety of the things that are said, those things actually occur. That's a genuine prophet. So Peter is arguing at the end of chapter 1, know this first, verse 20 says, but know this first, not know this chronologically first. But know this as of first importance. Know this above everything else. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, when he uses the word Scripture there, he's talking about the Old Testament, the only Scripture that was extant at the time that he was writing. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation the NASB says interpretation. The word has to do with inspiration. No prophecy in the Old Testament, he is arguing, came about because some man sat down and thought, I know what would be clever to say. I know what's a good idea. I'm going to say that this may or may not happen. All the way through the Old Testament, it is chock full of prophecy. Peter is arguing that those prophecies came directly from God, evidenced by the fact that they come true. There is a long, rich history of the prophecies of the Old Testament actually coming true. We're continuing to see those prophecies come true even in our own day. So we can say that the prophecy of the Old Testament didn't come about by men's cleverness the prophecies of the Old Testament came about because God, who is in charge of everything, said that this is what is going to happen. All the prophets did was record it. All they did was write it down, but God said it would happen. So know this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. This is a really important point to Peter. Now, I've research through the years as I have taught on prophecy and eschatology. I don't have all the numbers in front of me, but when I'm doing the whole prophecy explanation, I take the time to prove, demonstrate, that if you just break it down to verses, completely a quarter and more like a third of the entire Bible is prophecy. That means that prophecy is very prominent 
in the Bible. It's what separates the Bible from all other religious literature on the planet. Other religions that have religious literature don't do prophecy. Do you know why? It's risky. You can prove it. You can prove it. You can check it. If other religions say this is going to happen and it doesn't happen, well, then your religion doesn't look too good. So that's why they spend a lot of time on philosophical ideas and a lot of behavior stuff, but not prophecy. The Bible, on the other hand, does a ton of prophecy because God is begging you to check him out. He's begging you to check. When I say things, do they happen? And when you get to the New Testament, you read about the fulfillment of a whole lot of prophecies. But there are also a whole lot of prophecies in the Old Testament that haven't been fulfilled yet. I'm going to take a drink instead of just holding this bottle. <laughs> there are a whole lot of prophecies in the Bible. And because of the high degree of prophecy that has already come true we can have great confidence that the rest of it is also going to come true. There's no reason to believe that the rest of it won't come true since so much of it has come true absolutely, positively, in time. You can find it in history. Some of the prophecies in the Old Testament, you don't even have to go to the Bible to find their fulfillment. You can just find them in the reality of human history, like the prophecies of the fall of Tyre and Sidon. That actually occurred. Nebuchadnezzar began it. It was finished by Alexander the Great destroying the seaside town and then throwing all the, the rocks and the debris into the ocean, building a causeway out to the walled city on an island, and then conquering it until it became exactly as God said. It became a place where fishermen were going to dry their nets. Today, you can still go to the Middle East. You can find the place exactly where Tyre and Sidon used to be, and there is a causeway now. It is now an isthmus, practically a peninsula that goes out into the sea that was created by Alexander the Great. Everybody knows that history. It's just that it was predicted that that was going to happen hundreds of years before it actually happened. Okay, you can go find in human history actual demonstrations of the accuracy of biblical prophecy. That's my point. Peter wants you to know that the very fact that prophecy exists and that it's accurate proves this is the word of God because men can't do that. Isaiah predicted, you've heard me say it many times, predicted Cyrus, the Medo-Persian king, called him by name 150 years before he was even a king. Think about all the things that had to go right in order for that to happen. All the people who had to marry different people, all the people who had to fall in love and have children, who had to give those children particular names that just happened to be in the kingly line, that happened to to end up with a kid named Cyrus who just happened to end up being the king of the Medes and the Persians. All of that had to occur in human history and did. There's no historians that argue about it. The Persian king was Cyrus. That's the deal. Darius the Medes, Cyrus the king, that's the way it worked out. And there's no question about when Isaiah was written. So we know that Isaiah predicted it by name in advance by at least 150 years. Okay, you can find that out in human history. You don't even need the Bible to prove it. 
My point is, the Bible continues to be accurate, accurate, accurate. Peter says that, and he says it's the accuracy of it that proves that it is God's word and that it's not just created by men because men can't do that. No private interpretation, no private inspiration can do that. Verse 21 says, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of the human will, but men Moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And because men spoke from God, you can see that those things came true. That brings us to chapter 2. And now he's going to talk about false prophets. But he had to lay out that basis of real prophecy first. So that's why I just took the time to give you the, the giant overview of biblical prophecy so that you can understand that Peter has said Prophecy, genuine prophecy, God-inspired prophecy is a real thing that actually occurs and it's not done by men. But there's going to be men who try to do it. There's going to be men that pretend to do it. There are going to be men who are going to say things that don't actually occur. They are false prophets. And they have always been around. Remember the audience that he's writing to. And he says, but false prophets also rose among the people. Who are the people he's referring to? He's referring to the Israelites. He's referring to the fact that the history of the Old Testament shows that there were false prophets among the Israelites. Just as there will also be, here's the parallel, false teachers among you. There have always, always been men of ego, men of hubris, who have seen the church and have seen the congregation of the people of God as a means of self-promotion, as a way of making themselves rich or famous, as a way of making themselves important. Paul writes about them, those people that are trying to gather disciples to themselves. They want followers. They want a big name. They're caught up in their own boastful pride. That's the way it's always been. There used to be false prophets among the Israelites, and there's also going to be false teachers among you. And I would argue there are still false teachers in the church. But then Peter is going to show you how you can tell the false teachers from the real teachers. There will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce. Okay, so they're not going to be blatant. It's not going to be obvious. They're not going to show up in the pulpit with horns and a red tail and a pitchfork. It's not going to be like, you're the guy from Deviled Ham. I know what to do, but you're a false teacher. It's going to be secretive. It's going to be subtle. Why? Because all the way back in the book of Genesis, we read that Satan was in the garden and the snake was more subtle. The serpent was more subtle than all the creatures of the field. He didn't come into Eve and say, rebel against God. He said things like, didn't God say? Just a way to get you to think for yourself. Get a little bit of independence going. Oh yeah, I don't really need God. God or his word to tell me what to do. I had somebody say to me, I talked about it last year, who said to me, I don't understand why you think people ought to change their behavior 
according to something that some guy wrote in some book a couple thousand years ago. I said, really? That's what you think the Bible is? Some book that some guy wrote a couple thousand years ago? And she said, well, whatever. You get the idea. Okay, because these are people who are determined to think for themselves. And as soon as they're determined to think for themselves, the first place they go is, I don't need God. I don't need God's word. I don't need an external source telling me how to be or how to act or how to think. I will do it. Thank you very much. I'm a smart person. I'll figure it out for myself. Well, that's real easy to appeal to. That natural human hubris is real easy to appeal to. You just start secretly, carefully, privately introducing destructive heresies, and they'll go along with it because you start telling them it's about you. It's all about you. God wants you to be happy. God cares what you think. God would like your opinion. God is lonely. Have you ever heard that one? Oh, that's very popular. It's not about a religion. It's about a relationship. They'll tell you that, which sounds like, well, that sounds good. That's a, and that relationship is that God was up there in heaven, just lonely old God, and he needed companionship, so he made you, and now he just hopes that you'll love him, and he's just up there waiting to be loved by somebody, poor little God. It's about you. It's all about you. You got to complete God. You got to satisfy God. He's given you free will so that you can choose whether or not to love him. Because unless you choose to love him, then it's not genuine love. And he needs your genuine love. You can hear the sarcasm in my voice. No, he doesn't need anything from you. He is complete in himself. By the very nature of being God, he is totally satisfied with himself and by the way he wasn't lonely throughout eternity the father son and holy spirit were always in unity he was never lonely he created people for his glory he created people so that he could demonstrate both his grace and his judgment he created people so that he could show himself He's in the enterprise of glorifying himself. And he doesn't need nothing from you. In fact, you need him. Because he's either going to judge you and cast you into outer darkness forever, or he is going to love you. Not that we loved him, but that he first loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That's real love. He did all the loving part. He did all the relationship part. You are the recipient of God's astounding grace. He's not waiting on you. But if you can convince people it's all about you, well, then it gets real easy to start introducing more and more heretical ideas. Now, the word heresy here that Peter is going to use actually just moved right from the Greek language, haresis, I believe it is, moved right into the English language. It wasn't so much translated as it is transliterated straight into the English language. Thank you for jumping into my brain there. Because these false teachers will secretly introduce not just heresy, but destructive heresies. Now, the root of that Greek word heresy means they're going to create division they're going to create sex they're going to create separation within the true faith there's the genuine faith 
once delivered to the saints. And then there are people who are going to secretly introduce things that divide the faith, that separate the faith, that create division among saints and among sheep. And they're going to do it by creating ideas, thoughts, philosophies that are going to cause people to go, oh, yeah, you know, that is slightly better or more attractive than what the apostles gave us. This feels better to my flesh. This is more attractive. It's more about me. It's up, up, up with people. It's that's going to make me feel good. about. Well, that is the very essence of what it is to be heretical, to introduce things to the Christian faith that weren't introduced to the faith by the apostles. Anything that is introduced and imposed on the biblical Christian faith is by definition divisional, divisive, heretical. How are they going to do it? They're going to secretly introduce destructive heresies. And in so doing that, they're going to be denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Okay, so there's two sides to it. God knows what they're up to. God knows what they're doing. God is very aware that they are creating sex and divisions within the church. He's aware of that, and he's going to punish them. We saw the language last week from Jude. Peter's going to pick up on it here again and say that God knows they are sinning, and he has their judgment in store for them. So even though they think they're getting away with it now, just because God hasn't judged them yet, doesn't mean that God's not going to judge them. It means their judgment is waiting on them. And they're just going to run into it one day. Like right around, I'm going to say, death. And at that point, the judgment begins, and they're going to get the rest of forever to regret what they have done and the way that they have created heresies within the church. But one of the things that they're going to do is that they're going to teach, as I kept stressing, they're going to teach heretical things which are a denial of the master. As soon as you start teaching anything that is about you, about the person, advancing the idea of your free will or your choice or your decision or how God needs you so desperately, you're denying what the actual Christian faith is according to the Bible, and that denial of God's word is tantamount to a denial of God himself. So they are denying the master. Now, there are folks who read that verse and say, well, if they deny the master who bought them, they must be talking about Jesus and that Jesus redeemed them. Jesus died for them. He paid the redemptive price for them, but then they ended up denying him. There you go, Jim. That is proof that you can, of your own free will, deny Jesus even after he redeemed you. Except that that's not what Peter said. It's the way it gets read far too often. You can find lots and lots of YouTube videos that make that exact argument. Where people go right to that verse in order to say, well, see, you can deny the master that bought you. That means that God is not sovereign. And that means that he cannot keep people who of their own free will choose not to be kept. Here's what Peter said. First off, the word master there is not Lord. We saw 
the contrast in the book of Jude where he used this exact same word. It is the word despotes. It's the word from which we get despot. When you talk about somebody who rules a third world country somewhere who is killing people while we refer to him as a despot. It's usually a bad word in modern lexicon. We say, well, he's a tyrant. He's a despot. But what the word despot does mean is somebody who has absolute power, somebody who has absolute authority over life and death. He's the despot. That word despotes in the Greek means exactly that, the all-powerful, the authority one. This is not a reference to Jesus. It is a reference to God, the despot. You saw that in Jude's reference where he said that those people deny the despot and the Lord. He made a contrast between the two. Now, if it is true that Peter is trying to say that Jesus can die to redeem people and then those same people can choose to deny him, then Peter is being contradictory to what he has already said and the theology he's already laid out. Turn back to 1 Peter for a moment, 1 Peter 1. Am I talking really fast this morning? I feel like I'm racing. No. Okay. I got a steroid shot a couple days ago, so I'm, you know, I'm getting a tattoo. I'm speaking Russian. I'm, I don't know. I'm, don't lift the I'm joining the, the Olympics. I, I don't know. Let's start right at the very beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens, the diaspora scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who are Chosen, that's the basic word from which we get election. According, how were we chosen? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You remember that I said it's not just that he knew things about people. He knew people. The people are chosen, not the acts, not the things they do. He knows those people. He has relationship, intimacy with them in advance. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ. There's the Trinity right there. And that you may be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. Okay, so if God through his foreknowledge and his electing grace determined to give us an inheritance that is imperishable, can you lose it? No. No, that's the language of Peter. That's the theology of Peter. He is laying out his theology of salvation. We're there to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away that is reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God. If you are elected by God, if your inheritance is preserved for you, undefiled, doesn't fade away, and if you're being protected by the power of the Almighty One, can you decide to get yourself unsaved? No. No. Okay, so my point is, go back to Second Peter now, 
My point is, if that is the theology of Peter, and it is, if that's his explanation of how people get saved, and it is, then how could Peter suddenly, in 2 Peter 2, be talking about people who deny the one who redeemed them? He'd be contradicting himself. He'd be completely schizophrenic, and there'd be no point to studying Peter anymore, because Peter clearly doesn't know what he's talking about. The reality is this. Remember who he's talking to. Remember the history. Remember that he just referred to the scripture, the Old Testament. There were false prophets among the people of Israel. So he's got them, these Israelites, in the mindset of their own history, which can be found in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, was there ever a master who bought them and then they denied him. You just got it, didn't you? Yeah, of course. He redeemed them out of Egypt. He took them out of Egypt and he used the language of redemption. And I bought them. And I brought them out. That's why they're my people. Did they end up denying him? Yes, absolutely. That's part of the history of Israel. That's what Peter's referring to. Why did they turn against God and go their own way? Because there were false prophets among them. There were false teachers among them who denied the very master that bought them and as a consequence brought in these destructive heresies and as a consequence God is waiting to punish them for the heresies they introduced to Israel historically. So all you got to do is just look at the context. Just plug in the reality of who's talking, who they're talking to, and then what are they saying? And, And it clears right up. There's nothing in that verse about you blood-bought, redeemed Christians choosing to deny the Savior who redeemed you. That's the way it's all too often read and the way it's all too often explained, but it's not in the text. If you just look at it in context, it's very obvious that he's talking about a reality in Israel's history that God did purchase them out of Egypt did call them then his people because he redeemed them. That language of redemption out of Egypt is throughout the Old Testament. And because there were false teachers among them and false prophets speaking to them, there were those who denied that master that bought them. Make sense? Yep. They are bringing, by doing that, they are bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Verse 2. Hey, we made it to verse 2. Okay, so the false teachers are going to be among you. Are they going to be effective? Verse 2 says, and many will follow. Look at the next word. It's a really interesting word Peter chose. Not many will follow their teaching and philosophy because it will be so effective and convincing. Many will follow their sensuality, which means that the destructive heresies they are bringing in appeal to the flesh. Feel good. Make you feel good about you. There's a sensuality about it. There's a fleshliness about it. And many will follow that sensuality. I know a couple weeks ago I talked about a, uh, a Netflix thing that I had been watching about the group up in Oregon, the Bhagwan Roshnish. And I was astounded at the number of people 
who you would think were otherwise intelligent people, who suddenly decided to dress the part and go be part of that cult. But part of the attractiveness of that cult was that it was about you be you, you be the best you you can be, and it was very much a sex cult. It was all about sensuality. It was about physicality, about you being the greater man and meditating, but then there was also all this footage of people leaping and screaming and things that looked very much like demonic possession. Very deeply sensual was the point. And that appeals to people. That appeals to human beings because we are trapped in these bodies of flesh. Because we are in these sinful fleshly bodies, which we begin with. Maximize pleasure, avoid pain. So if somebody can combine the idea of religion and the idea of convincing philosophy with the idea of greater pleasure for you and your body and your mind and you soaking up all of those good feelings for you to avoid pain, that's really, really attractive. And it works every time it's tried. And it doesn't matter what guise it's under. It doesn't matter if it's people dressing in red and going to Oregon or whether it's people flocking to some of these healing rallies that go under the guise of Christianity. It's all about sensuality. It's all about fleshliness. It's all about more me. What can God do for me? How can I maximize me? I remember seeing Oprah one time had a woman on who had written a book about how to get angels to do your bidding. It was very attractive to people because they think God owes them something by virtue of the fact that they exist. The very fact that I'm here and I didn't ask to be born, now that I'm here, God and everyone else owes me something. Sensual. Me. Me first. Many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, because of these false teachers... The way of the truth will be maligned. Okay, is that pretty obvious? Here, I'll give you a quick demonstration. Uh, pick a church or organization that you can think of off the top of your head that's not teaching the truth. Oh, that was fast. That was easy, wasn't it? You go quick. Okay. Uh, do they have a reasonable crowd? Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. Look around. What do we do here? We just pound the Bible. 17 years of pounding the Bible. It's all we do is pound the Bible. The word of truth. The word of God. Those people in those other groups, what do they do to us? They malign us. Oh, you're part of that group. I one time went to, when I was serving my interim pastorship up in Dover, Tennessee, years and years ago. Um, There was a fellow who confronted me in a grocery store. And he said, you're part of that group that meets up in that trailer, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, I understand you all are Calvinists. And I said, sir, what do you think a Calvinist is? He said, well, you're those people who think there's only one way. And I went, well, then you got me. I'm a Calvinist. Yeah, I think there's one way. Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the truth, I'm the life. Yeah, that's what I believe. I'm a Calvinist, you got me. But listen to how he said it. You're Calvinist. 
The stories just go on and on and on. One of my favorites was Elder Ward used to love to haunt old bookstores. And uh, he and Henry and a couple of other men were in a city where Elder was preaching, and there was a, an old bookstore there. And so they went into the bookstore. They had understood that there was a lot of Reformed literature at that store. They'd been told by the folks at the church. So they went to see what was there. And they said the man and his son that were working in the store couldn't have been friendlier, couldn't have been nicer. And Elder, as you know, always looked the part. He was always dressed the preacher. So they were happy to have the preacher and his associates in the store with them. And then they asked if they had a reformed section. It turns out the reformed section was in the basement of the store. And he said, suddenly the man got very cold. And he told his son, take these men downstairs and show them where their books are. And the son said, what is it, dad? And asked the question, who are they? And he growled, they're Calvinists. Like they've got the plague. Don't touch them. And he went from being really, really hyper-friendly to really cold. Because they know these are the people who actually care about what the word of God says and are willing to just stick to it. There's only one way. There's one truth. There's one spirit. There's one baptism. There's one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We believe that. And as a consequence, because we hold to that truth, the way of truth gets maligned by the false teachers. How many false teachers have you ever heard on TV? You can find them all over YouTube. They're everywhere. Who say reformed Calvinistic sovereign grace thought is wrong. It's evil. Oh, I can't tell you how many times I've heard you're of the devil. I get email occasionally, not all the time, but occasionally this says you're leading people astray. You're of the devil. Of course, they always write in capital letters, you know, and they think I, I need this warning like I've been fooled somehow simply because, and check me on this, tell me if I'm wrong, simply because I keep pounding the Bible. When have I ever in 17 years stood here and taught you Calvin's Institutes? Not once. When have I stood in this pulpit with any other book than the Bible? Sometimes I have reference books with me to clarify a point. But when have I ever taught you out of any book except the Bible? Not once in 17 years. Why? I just pound the word of truth. And as a consequence, we get maligned. As a consequence, people try to shout us down because they love their sensuality. And if what we're saying is true, their sensuality is wrong and God is going to judge them for that. So in order to protect their own flesh and their own conscience, they have to say that we're wrong. Except that I would argue it's not about us. It's not that we're being right or wrong. We're just saying God's word is right. And God's word is so right that that's all we're going to do. All we're going to do is keep looking at the word. What does the word say? Because that's truth. But because of the false teachers, the way of the truth will be maligned. It was true then, it's true now. Yes, ma'am. Actually, it's not terribly important, but I, I didn't know if that's actually the appeal. It is most of these religions that have to do with sensuality is basically telling some 
telling a bunch of people that thing you want to do, you can do. And then you have people saying, no, actually, you can't do that. And that's where the anger and the hatred comes in. I didn't know if that had anything to do with it. Absolutely. I'll give you a perfect example. It's a controversial example, but I'll give you a perfect example. Marriage. What's the Bible say about marriage? Uh, One man, one woman. One man, one woman. There you go. It was that easy. That's what the Bible says. That's the truth. There it is. One man, one woman. Boom. We're done. That's marriage in the Bible. There you go. What does the world say? Well, you can have a man and a man. You can have a woman and a woman. You you can have two women and one man. Whatever you want to do, that's fine. That's fine by the world. And now there are plenty of churches that have adopted that philosophy. There are churches that perform weddings that aren't biblical weddings by definition. But they do it. Okay, why? Because it appeals to their sensuality. It appeals to their flesh. It makes them more popular. And so people will come in and bring their wallets and they can build bigger edifices to themselves because they've compromised the word of God. And when we say, no, 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 the Bible actually does lay out a standard. The Bible actually does define what marriage is. And it's a simple, straightforward definition. Who gets maligned? Them or us? Us. Us, Every time. Try to be a Christian baker that won't bake a cake for a gay wedding. We've all seen what happens. The way of truth ends up maligned. Isn't that obvious? Well, that's the way the world works because the world prefers the secretly introduced destructive heresies that deny what the master says and deny the truth, deny the very word of God. And what again is the motivation? Verse 3 says, and in their greed, they will exploit you. Why are they doing it? Greed, sensuality, fleshliness. Their motivation is not that you would know the truth. Their motivation is not your ever-living, never-dying soul and your relationship with a sovereign God who is going to decide the fate of everybody. That's not what they're interested in. They're interested in the fact that they can make money at it. Made most obvious again, as long as I'm naming names and throwing things out there, L. Ron Hubbard was a science fiction writer who, according to his son, in the expose his son wrote, He figured out that if you're a religion, you don't pay taxes. So he created Scientology, which is some of the most gobbledygook stuff you're ever going to read in your life. Go read the Dianetics book sometime. No, don't. Don't bother. But it worked. There are people who adhere to it, and it's called a religion in America now. And they have all the tax advantages of a religion, which makes religion in America homogenized because it's no longer... Christianity and definitional Christianity. It's now Christianity and Mormonism and Scientology and Wicca. And these are all religions in America. Some of them are clearly denying the truth. Why? Because of greed. It's always because of greed. It's always because somebody wants to get rich. Have you seen the little towns in Mexico? I have. When I used to live in Southern California, we would travel into Mexico. There are little towns in Mexico full of impoverished, impoverished people. And in every one of those little villages, there's a Catholic church full of money and gold and greed. Why? Why? 
because the motivation is money, not the welfare and care of those people. It's always greed. At the bottom of every heretical idea that has ever infiltrated the church, you will find the greed. Follow the money. It's always there. It always exists. Peter said so. And in their greed, they will teach you. Or in their greed, they will care for you. In their greed, they will make sure that you're well taught and that you understand the way. It's not what Peter wrote. In their greed, they will exploit you. What does that word mean? Take advantage of you in every way they possibly can because they care that they get wealthy. And then the name it, claim it, word of faith people are going to say, and if you just do it like me, you can get rich too. You can have your own private plane and live in a mansion if you just do it like me. Isn't it surprising that it's only the guy at the top of those pyramid schemes who ever gets rich? You would think at some point people would figure that out. People would size that one up and go, you know, I've been following this guy a long time, doing everything he tells me to do, and I'm getting poorer, and he's buying more homes. Something's wrong here. But the greed continues because they exploit you. And how do they exploit you? They exploit you with false words. Not the word of truth, not the Bible, not the word of God. Remember, they're secretly introducing destructive heresies. How are they doing it? With false words, attractive words, sensual words, words that sound good, words that appeal to you. But look at the end. Look what Peter wrote. Their judgment from long ago, which means God knew it. The same way he foreknew you, he knew them. Their judgment from long ago is not idle because that's what people think. Look, I'm getting away with it. I'm exploiting these people. I'm getting away with it. I got a jet and I got a mansion and I got a private staff and I I go into these big auditoriums and people show up and bring me money. I'm getting away with it. No, their judgment isn't idle like you would think. God is just waiting because their destruction is is not asleep. And that's the way they think of it. They think, oh yeah, well, God's not judging me. He must be in favor of it. Except that he's already said, don't do that. And you're doing it anyway. Therefore, your judgment is not idle. Your destruction is not asleep. Here's Peter's summation statement. It's the next several verses, and you have to kind of read them all together to understand his summary point. For if God... Did not spare angels when they sinned. We talked about that a little bit two weeks ago when we were talking about Jude. That there were angels that apparently fell. You can read about it back in Genesis. And then God kept them under the darkness. And he's reserving them there until their ultimate judgment. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell... And committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment? That's kind of chilling, isn't it? I mean, if God will do that to angels, what will he do to men who sin against him? And if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood 
upon the world of the ungodly. Notice, by the way, Peter takes the flood story very literally. Notice he didn't allegorize it. He didn't say, that's a good story where we can learn something out of it. No, he said it's an actual flood that actually killed everybody. They kept eight people alive. He took it very literally. Why? Because Jesus did. Verse 6, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. Well, then, if all of that is true, if God knows how to preserve people under chains of darkness for judgment, if he condemned Sodom and Gomorrah, if he flooded the world, if all of that is true, verse 9 says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. What's he getting at there? Sovereignty, sovereignty, sovereignty. If God chose you from before, if he elected you, if he is the cause of your faith, if he's the one who sent his son to die for you and he has redeemed you, then what Peter said back in 1 Peter 1, that God protects those that he chose, he's saying that's still true. God knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. He knows what he's doing. And especially those who indulge the flesh. There's that language again, sensuality. Those that bring in the private heresies in order to appeal to the flesh especially those that indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires, in its sensualities. And so they introduce private heresies that appeal to that sensuality in order to bring more people to themselves because they're greedy. See how it all works? Still works that way today. Always has been that way. God knows that. Peter knows that. The Bible knows that. They will indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires, and what will they do? They'll despise authority. I don't want anybody over me. (laughs) But that goes all the way back to, we will not have this man rule over us. I don't need no God. I don't need no Jesus. I don't need your Holy Spirit. I'm a self-made man. I'll do what I want to do. But there are authorities in heaven, much greater authorities than we begin to imagine. And those authorities are controlled by an absolutely authoritative and sovereign God who is already keeping the godly and preserving them from all of their temptations and sinfulness while he is keeping the evil under chains of darkness in order to keep them under punishment until the day of judgment. That's authority. That's a God who knows what he's doing. But they, they're so, I would say, stupid Peter says, daring. They are so self-willed. There's where your free will comes in right there. It's not back there in chapter 2, verse 2. It's right here. They are self-willed. Now, again, when I say there's your free will right there, 
recognize that the will of a human being is always in bondage to the nature of the human being. You can't do what you can't do, even if you will to do it. You can only do what's within your nature to do. So men who are daring, who despise authority, become self-involved, self-willed. I'll do what I want to do when I want to do it. I'll do what makes me feel good. I'll be sensual. I'll make myself rich. I'll take care of me. Self-willed. They're daring, and they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. That's just the word doxa. It's the single Greek word. It means the majesties of the heavens, the glories of the heavens, the glories of the spiritual world that you know nothing about, that Jesus knew like the back of his hand, that you don't comprehend. Who are you to revile that? And they don't tremble when they do it. They just hate on it. They just hate on God. They hate on the Bible. They hate on Christianity, and they don't tremble when they do it because they don't understand the glory and the majesty of what the word really says. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power than human beings are do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. We saw that last week in Jude that Michael, when contending over the body of Moses, would not bring a reviling accusation against Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Okay, so angels have the wisdom to know that it's not within them to bring a reviling rebuke against angelic creatures. That's God's domain. But human beings full of hubris and ego will we'll give anybody our opinion that'll listen. And we'll deny God and we'll shout our heresies from the rooftop because we actually think we know what we're talking about. But we don't know what we're talking about because verse 12 says, these, like unreasoning animals, brute beasts, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will, in the destruction of those creatures, also be destroyed. That's where we'll pick up next week. I left you on a high note, on a feel-good message. Boy, I can't wait to come back next week, Jim, and get more of that. But look what Peter's saying. Peter's real clear about false teachers, false prophets. The good news in it is God knows. God knows who they are. He's already set their judgment in place. He's waiting, he's patient, he's long-suffering. But he's not enduring it, he's not ignoring it, he's not looking the other way. They're just storing up wrath for themselves. And we just have to teach the way of truth, the way of truth, the way of truth. That's the safest way to know that we're not going to end up in a similar judgment because God knows how to preserve the godly. And that's good news. Right? All right. Did I see a hand? Hi, Eileen. Hi. Um, quick question. Yeah. This false prophet, do you think they know what they're doing or not know? Or, I mean, some of the teachings, do you think they believe themselves? Or? I think there's two answers because it's kind of a little bit of both. I have heard people teach bad theology, wrong stuff, that just simply grew up in that tradition and don't know any better. They're promoting what their teachers taught them. 
and so they're just repeating it. In that case, I think they're doing it out of ignorance. But yes, there are those who are demonically driven. Yes, there are those who are, are just greedy, who are just utilizing religion and the church and Christianity as a way to self-promote and as a way to make themselves rich. Those people know what they're doing because that didn't happen by accident. Nobody woke up one day and said, what? I'm Benny Hinn. That happened by design on purpose. And that, I think, is the most treacherous place to be in. Does that make sense? Okay. Anything else? Any other questions? Yes, Tom. On the false teachers, they're all also preachers in this country who have a pretty nice gig. And they're preaching stuff that they know will keep their job safe. And they also know that it's not accurate in the Bible. And they, they go ahead and preach the, the doctrine that will keep them hired and keep the elders happy and keep them employed rather than to speak the truth. And all of a sudden, they're, they're out of a job. Right. And that, that's quite a, quite a problem for somebody to have to balance. And you know what the Bible calls them? A hireling. Yeah, yeah, because that's that's false teaching, but it, it is a difficult position if you're oh, yes. tired and you you've got a, a wife and children and and you're hanging on to the church in order to keep your life together, but you know you're saying things that are wrong. Yep. And it, Their judgment does not sleep. It takes guts to to walk away from that and do the right thing. Yeah. I think I told you several years ago, I met with a pastor here in Smyrna. I won't tell you what church, because he's not there anymore. But uh, he said to me, straight to my face, he said, you're right. He said, if you're preaching Reformed theology, you're right. I'm convinced you're right. And he said, but I can't teach that, because my church wouldn't stand for it. And he said exactly what you just said. He said, it's my paycheck, it's my insurance, and they provide my housing. Yeah. And I thought, man, that is a sad testimony right there. But it's a reality. Anything else? We're good? Okay, I promise next week uh, some of it might be a little happier. Maybe, if I can, if I can work hard on it. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.